Hey everyone, this is Deacon Jim, and joining me in this conversation today is Amanda Clevenger, who is the leader of the Faith and Climate Change Small Group at Forefront Brooklyn, because we are having a conversation with Dr. Mari Jorstad. Now, Dr. Jorstad is a biblical scholar whose specialty and work focuses on ecology, land, migration, and belonging in the Hebrew Bible. Now, this is not necessarily a conversation about what the Bible has to say about pollution or how to take care of the earth. It's not quite that superficial. Instead, this is a conversation about what the Old Testament has to say about people's interactions with the earth, their relationship with the earth, and a lot of look at language and metaphor and specifically why the earth and natural language was important to those early civilizations. So this is not necessarily a conversation about reaction or action when it comes to take care of the planet, but interaction with the earth and our relationship with the earth. From there, we also kind of get into a conversation about the New Testament and how relationships and language changed, and also why these days, people's and the society's identity is so tied into land and specifically occupying and owning land. Before digging into that, though, we spend a couple minutes talking to Amanda so that you can get a sense of who she is, what her background and area of expertise is, and why she is the ideal partner to join me in this conversation. So let's learn a little bit about Amanda and then get into our conversation with Dr. Mari Jorstad. Amanda, thank you for joining me for this interview with uh, Mari, which we are going to get to. But first and foremost, there's a lot of people out there who I'm sure are probably hearing your voice and your name for the very first time. Amanda and I were, were talking um, off mic about how the last time we saw each other was four years ago um, when she was joining the AV team and then the pandemic hit. So um, you're probably a stranger to many people with the exception of your those members of your of your small group, which we'll get into. But first, introduce people as to who you are, what your area expertise is and why it is relevant for this conversation we're about to have. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Uh, so my name is Amanda, pronoun she, her. I've been a member of the church for almost six years now, and I'm a hardcore climate and sustainability junkie. <laughs> we lead the church's uh, faith and climate change small group, which is really exciting. That launched back in 2022 when we just relaunched it recently to do some expanded work. So I'm really excited about that. And then in my professional career, I am working to decarbonize New York City's buildings. So I work mostly with low-income housing developers to create greener buildings. And for me personally, that means helping them understand the laws that regulate their carbon emissions for our buildings, and then also advocating on their behalf with state and local regulators to help shape climate policy for buildings in the future. It's certainly noble work in a city, which I think is often kind of thought of as like one of the most progressive until you kind of start digging into things and like, um, actually, we've got a lot of progress that still has to be made, like, especially here. Yes, for <laughs> sure. For sure. I think, you know, we definitely still have a lot of progress to make, but New York, I will say, is really on the forefront. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, it happens a lot on this podcast. <laughs> it, really, it does, it does. New York is really leading the pack when you compare it to other states, at least in the U.S., on figuring out what we're going to do with the climate crisis. And so we already have state legislation that's several years old at this point that maps out where we need to get to across the New York's entire economy from everything from like agriculture to cars and heavy industry and buildings and how we need to reduce emissions from each of those sectors. And so we're already <laughs> a step above a lot of the other places that are trying to think about this. But yeah, we still have a really long way to go. Um, so I wonder if you could, you know, digging a little bit into this, um, how can Christians recapture and recommit to environmentalism as a faith practice? Because um, there's a, a plethora of issues these days, which is, um, you know, that is at the forefront ha, 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 of our minds, especially in, in the progressive church. But a lot of times environmentalism, earth stewardship kind of gets, I don't want to say pushed by the wayside, but we kind of forget about it. We focus on humans first, which is awesome and totally valid, but also then other stuff like environmentalism is kind of like, you know, we'll, we'll, we will, we'll get around to that. So can you speak a, a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I think you're right. And I've noticed the same thing. But there is a shift now that extreme weather is so palpable in our communities. You know, like five years ago, we we're still sort of talking about climate change in a very theoretical way. But now, like, you have instances like we had last summer with the pollution coming down from the smoke in the wildfires in Canada that affected mm. everyone. And yep. it was a very serious event and highlighted very clearly the inadequacy of so many of our systems, including our buildings, in facing our future of extreme weather and, and other climate related events. And so I think now it is at the top of people's minds, which is awesome. And so it's how do we harness that? And so I have a lot of thoughts on this. I'll keep it brief. I think it's important to acknowledge first that this is not your fault as an individual <laughs> who are thinking about people's climate anxiety, right? The whole carbon footprint thing was invented by like an oil company to make you feel bad and to distract from the fact that it's the <laughs> fossil fuel industry that's really at fault for what's going on here. So that's really important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of different things that people can do to make your life greener, right? You can eat less meat and you can compost and reducing your waste in any form is good or thinking about your energy use, right? Turning off your lights, switching to LEDs, washing your clothes on cold instead of hot when you do laundry. Like there's a million different things that we can talk about in more detail if you want. But I think that to really make it something that you can maintain in the longer term, for me, figuring out how to integrate that into my faith practice has been really key there. And I think that they fit together really well. It's not, it's not a hard match and they actually complement one another really well with my faith practice and trying to live a greener life. And it really, I think the alignment with faith helps us to push back against the status quo when you're fighting to change anything, having faith is helpful in that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see more clearly the things that are not so great about our society, like our very deep ties to capitalism and consumerism, right? We have to learn to try to let go of the idea that stuff will make us happy. <laughs> <laughs> and because my very core belief with my faith is that my relationship with God is the most important relationship that I have. And it's really the primary source of joy in my life. And so I know because of that, on some level, buying more stuff is not going to give me that same joy. And that that's my aspiration. I have not gotten 100% <laughs> yet. We're working on it. But it has made it easier to live a greener life because I've found that when I nurture my relationship with God and with my faith community, that it helps me to feel more connected to the earth feel more connected to our, our plants and animals and also feel less tied down to the problematic beliefs about consumerism that a lot of us are raised with. What does a justice lens look like for sustainability efforts now? Because I say, you know, I just said that when it comes to environmentalism, we often push it off. We focus on people first. And yet these days, especially these days, when you think of justice, when you think of environmentalism, that people and environmentalism are tied together. Um, so what, what does justice look like for in that regard, in that context? Yeah, the incorporation of justice is a really, really important thing for us to be thinking about. And it is something that we will be thinking about in the Faith and Climate Change small group as well. But, you know, we know that communities of color have disproportionately borne the brunt of our addiction to fossil fuels for a long time. Mm -hmm. Even still today, the peaker power plants that spew out all types of fumes in New York City tend to be located in low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. And they're still there, right? We haven't we haven't really done anything about it yet. So we still have a really long way to go. Uh, but I will say, you know, again, that New York has done a good job in relation to some of the other places uh, in our country at trying to make sure that we're putting low-income people first. And so we have made some progress on that, but we have a long way to go. We can be more ambitious, right? It's not enough to say that people living in disadvantaged communities 
shouldn't be harmed by the clean energy transition. Like that's obvious. We know <laughs> that. <laughs> we have to go further than that, right? We have to teach residents of low-income buildings how to use the fancy new equipment that goes into their buildings and we have to create job opportunities and we have to give disadvantaged communities a role in this transition more broadly right which we're starting to see actually very recently in some of our NYCHA public housing here in the city which is cool where residents like get to vote on the structure that the agency uses to upgrade their buildings so we need more of that right finding ways to make our buildings, our cars, our industries greener, but also incorporating those justice goals as well. So one final question for you before we we bring in uh, Mari here. Um, if people have been listening to this, be like, yo, this woman sounds awesome. She knows what she's talking about. Your climate change group, when, where, how can people get involved? Yeah, check us out. So it's faith and climate change. So like I said, the group started back in 2022, we met for maybe a month or two to do a limited group thinking about the theological connections to environmentalism. So we read a really cool book and then we sort of wrapped the group there. But now we are relaunching it to focus this time specifically on action. So we're going to be thinking about how we can educate the forefront community about climate change and about what we want to do. So we have a workshop that we're going to be planning with a TBD date. So stay tuned for that. We also are planning the advocacy work that we want to do outside of Forefront, right? Which environmental justice groups do we want to partner with to go to rallies and protests and sit-ins? There's all kinds of different event events going on that we want to be involved in. And then the last one is figuring out how we can make Forefront as a church more sustainable and thinking about our operations and reducing emissions there. So I'm really excited about it. We are meeting bi-weekly on Zoom at six o'clock. So if you'd like to join us, you're more than welcome to. And you can go to the Faith and Climate Change group on Church Center and sign up to join us. Awesome. And uh, anyone listening, look in the show notes. I'll include a link to get there so you can find out more information join them on a bi-weekly basis. But I think, uh, why don't we, why don't we bring in Marie now? That sounds great. Thanks, Jim. Mari, I want to bring you into this conversation now. So now that we know a bit about Amanda, you are obviously the, the main event here. Um, so I, if, if you can just start out kind of introducing yourself, if people don't know who you are, what your specialty is, introduce people, what your work is, what your studies are, and also just kind of most importantly, what drew you to this area of, of study and specialty? Yeah, so I'm I'm Mari Dorset. Um, I'm a biblical scholar. Uh, I studied the Hebrew Bible, so everything before Jesus, essentially. And um, my area of particular expertise is um, like Bible and ecology. The thing that I'm probably the world expert at, which is not a lot, but um, is animism in the Bible. And I'm also really interested in like questions of land politics, uh, migration, belonging, those kinds of questions. And what got me here? Um, there's probably a very long answer to that question. The kind of short one might be <laughs> that I um, wrote a paper in, during my PhD about Genesis 4 and the land in Genesis 4. Um, the land swallows Abel's blood and then calls out to God, and I thought that was weird. <laughs> um, so I wrote a paper about it. And um, when I came to do my dissertation, I thought I would kind of look for the same dynamic elsewhere, um, which I did not find. But I did find many other instances of, of weirdness in the sense of, um, or that was weird to me, of uh, things that were neither human or animal um, doing very active things. Um, so that's how I kind of ended, ended up doing the particular work I've done. Right. Well, I, I applaud you for um, siphoning through the multiple instances of weird things from Genesis and focusing <laughs> on one that you wanted to study. <laughs> yeah, there's a few others. Mari, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by animism for our audience? Mm -hmm. Some of us are a little vaguely familiar with that, but that is going to be a newer concept for yeah. some of our listeners. So I'd love for you to explain that in more detail. So there's kind of, well, almost like there's helpful to know the kind of two versions of what people mean by animism. So animism is a term from the kind of early days of anthropology. And um, 
and was a way of explaining what essentially like European colonizers um, saw in religions and worldviews that they um, encountered. So early definitions of animism essentially I'll say something along the lines of animism is the attribution of spirit uh, to that which is um, um, inanimate. So um, early definitions of animism assume it's a kind of mistake, um, that um, it's an, an attribu attribution of life beyond kind of what is appropriate to all kinds of things. And so there was a kind of dip in the use of animism in anthropology because that definition is pretty racist. Uh, and so, so anthropologists moved away from using it, but um, it has, there's been a resurgence in using it in something called new animism. And the most famous definition of animism from that group is one by a scholar named Harvey, Graham Harvey. And I'm going to get some words wrong here, but it is essentially um, animists are people who um, live in relationship um, with other beings, some of whom are human. Um, so, and that those relationships are um, concerned with like tact and etiquette and respect. Um, so the question isn't like, is there a spirit? hiding somewhere inside a rock. The question is, do you have a relationship with the rock? And does the rock have a relationship with you? Um, it's often easier, I think, to think about trees than rocks for um, like Western European, North American kind of people. But that's essentially, those are the two important definitions. So you don't have to imagine like things having brains, for example. The the modern I kind of I would think contextual Disneyfied example sort of like anthropomorphism kind of giving a a a life to something which is an inanimate object for the for the purpose of relation connection that sort of a thing. Yeah, so I've I've used the example of the grandmother tree in Pocahontas, um, which um, someone I knew just watched Pocahontas for their children, and she was like, "We we should not have it was bad." Um, so maybe don't actually watch Pocahontas, but. Um, but the kind of Disney version assumes you have to, the tree has to become human for that relationship to happen. And animists aren't like confused about what trees are um, and that trees are significantly different than humans. Um, animists just still think that there can be relationship. Um, and um, there's often a focus on shared categories. So most plants and animals um, need food. They have to care for their offspring in some way. They have to figure out how to get have offspring. Like they have to be concerned with sex. Um, and often there's um, like shelter or territory. Like those are shared categories. And so thinking through how other beings do that rather than focusing on like intelligence or agency. Um, is often how those relationships are established. That's very interesting, Rory. And how do you think this new animist perspective helps us understand some of the stories from the Old Testament? Because like you were referring to in Genesis and in many of the other chapters in the Old Testament, there's some bizarre things that could fall into this category. And so I'm really curious to hear what you think about that. Um, so the sort of like big background is that most people at most times and in most places have had some sort of animism as part of the worldview. Um, so like we're kind of the weird outliers as like modern people. So um, and and people have said that in comparative religious studies like for a long time. So I'm the first person who've like written a book about this, but there's been throwaway comments that like, of course, the people who wrote the Bible were just like their neighbors in this regard. Um, but, um, well, I won't go into, for all kinds of reasons, it's not been emphasized and has um, not been studied. 
But um, what people have done instead is essentially when you get to like weird texts like Genesis 4 or um, in the prophets, all the texts about fields mourning or trees clapping their hands. Um, um, in Deuteronomy, the heaven and earth are called as witnesses. But pe what people have done is to look at like, how is this a metaphor for people? Um, so the heaven and the earth or the trees or the fields are just stand in for human audience. Um, and there's people will talk about that relationship in different ways, but essentially like we're not talking about fields or trees or heaven and earth. Um, and I just, I think that's essentially wrong. So the texts are weird and they are do use metaphor, but I think they use metaphor to talk about trees and the heavens and the earth and like, uh, what was the last one? Yeah, fields. Um, those are not the only examples, but those were the ones um, that I, the text that I talked about. And so the question that we need to think about is like, what do they say about trees? So like what metaphors are always complicated, um, but what do these complicated metaphors say about trees? And a lot of stories simply make more sense if we ask that question. So um, like Moses, for example, he several times in Deuteronomy calls the heavens and the earth to witness to Israel's um, covenant adherence. And the heavens and the earth can do that partly because they live so much longer than people. And so if those are just a stand-in for people, the logic of the whole thing falls apart. Whereas if Moses is serious about what he's saying, those work really well as witnesses. You, you have to have a different idea about what the sort of sky and the ground can do. But if you have that idea, the, the text all of a sudden isn't actually that weird. It's just different than what we might. And you don't have to get like all twisted up in a knot trying to figure out how it looks like a courtroom. It doesn't, it's not a courtroom. <laughs> So with with that in mind, this idea of of looking at nature a different way, looking, you know, or, or, or in, in even relating to them in a different way, I, I'm I'm curious about then the what the biblical context or concepts are of when it comes to land, you know, ownership, basically. So like, you know, when when God gave Adam and Eve, like the Garden of Eden or the Israelite army conquered a nation. So like the land was delivered to the Israelites. Um, is there an implication behind those stories or even the language about like what ownership meant in regards to what ex expectations were of the people to steward it or to take care of it? Because, you know, these days, certainly like it's idea, it's, it is the idea of, you know, I've done something, whether it's purchasing or um, trading, like I own this property now and I can kind of do whatever I want with it. And there's not really a consideration beyond like, it is mine to do what I wish. Yes, so I'm gonna start with the, the bit that sounds bad or it sounds good. And then we can talk about what I think is, is challenging about it. So um, ancient Israelites and Judeans would have been horrified at our ideal pri private property, just like absolutely horrified. Um, and sen essentially I think it would have looked like enslavement of the land. Um, and also just like, don't we care about children? Um, so in the Hebrew Bible, there is no such thing as private property. So you cannot sell land. You can only inherit land and pass it on to your children. Or you can, um, um, through the process of korban, which people maybe know from when it's mentioned in the New Testament, you can give it to the temple. Um, that process, it, we're not quite clear about it, but those, that's it. Um, the only times we hear about land sold in the Hebrew Bible, and I can't remember how many times it is, but it's very few. Um, and almost all of them are when Abraham buys the land, the, the cave to bury Sarah in. He buys the cave and the fields it stands on from foreigners. So, so most of the examples are that passage, but every example involves um, someone Israelite buying land from a foreigner. There's no like 
Um, and in terms of legal text, there is an exemption for houses in cities that have no fields. You can treat them more like private property, but like agricultural land is not for sale. And the theological reason for that is that all the land is gone. So like you have no business selling it. Um, the difficult part of that um, is that in the conquest narratives, um, it's essentially for like God can decide to throw out the people who are there um, and the land itself also, um, like in Leviticus, the land is described as, wait, no, maybe it's Deuteronomy that actually describes the land throwing out the earlier, that is Deuteronomy. Um, like spewing out the earlier, like they were bad. So the land spewed them out and now you get it. Leviticus threatens the same fate on the Israelites, but it doesn't say the people before them were spewed out. And I think what that does is that um, the people are accountable to the land and to God, but they're not accountable to the people who were there before. And so it enables um, like... Um, it, they, that way of theological thinking has been latched on in colonial narratives. I don't think it's the only possible outworking of it, but it has been a very consequential, very damaging outworking of those stories. So, which I'm not saying that private property is then the solution, but um, like kind of any system, there are, I think, consequences that sound very positive and then there are also consequences that are less positive yeah that's really interesting Maureen. I, th I think there are some very important implications that I definitely want to get to in terms of how that influences you know some of the conflicts that we've seen in modern in modern times but I, I first want to talk about what you mentioned about the Israelites being accountable to God and accountable to the land. And what does that entail in terms of having accountability to the land in ancient times? What does that actually mean? Yeah, so, well, it means a bunch of things. I think we probably can't cover all of them. But one of the most um, significant ones, as in it's talked about the most, um, is Sabbath of servants. So in Leviticus, um, um, not in all the Sabbath texts, but in many of the Sabbath texts, um, the like human Sabbath is important because it enables the land to keep Sabbath. And the land has to keep Sabbath. Um, like the land is ritually obligated to keep Sabbath. And so the reason why the land might vomit you out is that if you get in the way of the land's ability to observe Sabbath, the land will prioritize Sabbath observance over its human inhabitants. Um, so in that case, like that is a very, like an often repeated relationship rule between the people and the land. But then there's also lots of like smaller legal texts that touch on it. So like, for example, you are not to prostitute your daughter because um, so that you don't prostitute the land. It's not super obvious, I think, to us at this point what that means. But um, but again, I think it's like, it's meant seriously that something about um, selling your daughter in an inappropriate way will lead to selling the land in an inappropriate way. Um, and then there's just lots of rules, like um, like you're to cut your hair the same way you cut your field, um, which I think is more of a, you, so that you can carry that relationship in your body. It's men, not women who do it. But um, And there's lots of rules that regulate how you treat your land. Um, and often the like, and we do this because, is totally missing. Uh, so we get things like, um, I am the Lord, we'll stop. Um, and, you know, you're like, okay, okay, I could like, I could use a bit more detail. Um, but so, so much, if you start 
most people don't spend a lot of time, most Christians don't spend a lot of time in Leviticus and Numbers. But if you start looking at the legal corpus, so much of it in some way touch on how you interact with your land and how you interact with your animals. That, that's that's really interesting and almost kind of brings a a new context, at least for me, to the the Exodus story of like the Israelites leaving Egypt and especially when it comes to the, the 10 plagues. Uh, I mean, you know, because if, if you going back to Sunday school, everyone, if you forget the 10 plagues, you know, it was all kind of like nature based things. You know, the river turned to blood. There was frogs. There was locusts. There was darkness. And we see a lot of a, a lot of the early stuff in 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 the Old Testament kind of like showing a. God communicating to Israel through plants and animals and that sort of thing. And, and I'm wondering if there if there's a theological significance um, of God using ecology in that way. I mean, does it is there kind of is it the, the, the specific reason that those are the 10 plagues? It's because of this relationship to land and the accountability to land. Yeah, so I think it might be helpful. I just wrote a paper on water um, and which I don't know if people would actually enjoy, but I can tell you the, the takeaway. Um, so rain specific, or it's about water, but let's think about rain. So rain in the Hebrew Bible is one of the like most important proofs of God's power. And um, rain is almost never mentioned without saying God makes it rain. So like it's raining today, the, the Hebrew Bible version of that is something like, God makes it rain today. Um, and there's almost like creedal formulations. They're not formal creeds, but um, that God is the one who brings the early rain and the latter rain, the rain in its season. And so God is the God that reliably brings you water. Um, and you know God's power primarily by things not going wrong. So like, if the seasons work, you know that God's doing well. And anytime you see a cloud, you're like, okay, God is here with the cloud. Um, and the Hebrew Bible doesn't really speak of miracles. It speaks of signs and wonders. Um, and the plagues are signs and wonders. When things don't, like things that we might think of as like, um, breaking the rules of nature or something like that. Um, those are usually, or just things going wrong, those are usually associated with judgment. So unusual drought or unusually heavy rainfall, um, rivers stopping up, you know, walking through lakes, things like that. So I think um, that like that's the context. And I don't know the like specifics of each plague, like those have connections with, they have cultural associations, um, which I am now, I can't remember. Um, but but I do think thinking about it in the context of the primary um, display of God's power is in fact just like normal life. And then when you have things like the plagues, those um, signal that something has gone really wrong and like needs needs fixing. And in this case, like they need, they need to leave. Yeah, I think this raises the natural next question, you know, hearing that in the Old Testament, God's presence and God's power through things like rain, but also drought and some of the other extreme weather that you mentioned. I think it definitely raises questions about how that gets interpreted in the modern era, such a deterministic viewpoint about what God's role is and what God's relationship is. Because one of the challenges that I know that we have had in the climate advocacy movement are people of faith some of them have witnessed, you know, some of the forefronters have witnessed this in old church communities that they were a part of, where people said, well, you know, God is all powerful and God wants to bring this down upon us, you know, extreme weather is God's fate for us, however apocalyptic that sounds. What would you say to that, Maury? 
What's your reaction to that? Well, so I think, first of all, I want to add to that bucket the those people over there are having extreme weather because they worship Satan. I feel like that's also a common um, rhetoric. I think essentially that is taking one strand of something that is in the Bible to an extreme end. So yes, God is in control of weather. Like that's very much the case in the Bible. But human action like in influences it but not in like a super straightforward way. So the relationship between weather, people, and God always requires interpretation. And we get different ones in different places in the Bible. Sometimes people seem to need no like overarching explanation, but then you have things like the the drought in um, Samuel with the slaughtering of the prophets of Baal um, where like Samuel declares a drought, there is a drought, then he declares the end of the drought. And it's very like, um, but there's essentially like each story is a li little different and it takes wisdom and insight to know what the connection is. And um I don't think climate change as a human-induced phenomena is so foreign to that. Um, it's just that the causes in the Bible are not just kind of te technological or um, like scientific. They're also like social and moral. So the fact that you like charge your neighbor too high interest on your loan and the fact that you salinate your soil those are both seen as affecting your field, which is different than how we might think about it. Um, but like, if we take that a little further, it might not again be so different. So, um, like, if you think about the um, like Dust Bowl in the U.S., natural phenomenon, but essentially brought on by colonialism and both an attack on the land and the people who had stewarded it. That's not very different, cost, like costly. And people have explained that phenomenon in many ways, um, many of which have just been like, well, shit happens. Um, but um, again, like you need interpretation. So there isn't like, just like this happens. So we know that you always need the, like the relationship um, both with God and the land and the ability to interpret. And that happens like in community and people disagree, even within the Bible. Um, and with, with an eye of kind of like shifting the conversation from like the Old Testament to more contemporary times, we have the, the transition of, I guess, why did I just say, I guess, the transition of Jesus. And the idea in, in, in Christian belief is that idea that, you know, the Jesus's arrival in the New Testament does not negate the Old Testament, but instead is a fulfillment of Old Testament promises, prophecies, and that kind of thing. So is there a, a shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament in attitudes or themes about land, the attitude towards it, um, that we see, or or is it just also kind of, or is it dropped entirely? I'm curious about that transition and kind of how how that looks. So I should say this is like where I'm not an expert, um, um, and you know, also with the Hebrew Bible, it's so old. Calling oneself as an expert is kind of ridiculous, but I think the thing, the thing to keep in mind that's really different about the New Testament as opposed to the the Hebrew Bible is the time and geograph geography covered is significantly smaller and the political situation is different. And that shift is gradual, but um, let's cover the time first and then the geographic shift. So the Hebrew Bible covers like thousands of years. And so um, you have time for like a, a bunch of conquests and shifts and people go different places. Like, um, there's like a lot of travel across land. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus walks around a bunch, but it's not that many. So I think that that does change how people think about land because 
you're not like, well, I didn't have this land and now I have it and what do I do with it, right? Like that's not happening. Um, and then um, for much, not necessarily when it was written, but for much of what was narrated in the Hebrew Bible, um, Israel and Judah are independent or semi-independent political units where most people are subsistence farmers. Um, and there is at least a somewhat functioning um, system of inheritance. It does seem like debt slavery was a pretty major problem that messed that up, but it, there's sort of a system and then there's wrinkles. But starting with the Babylonian and Assyrian exiles, essentially, like they're just not independent for much, like much time. Um, and so that really changes, like how much, how much you have to produce to pay your taxes, for example. Um, it's a little, again, unclear. It's just very long ago. The extent to which there's a breakdown in the subsistence farming, um, like were farms combined to make something sort of ancient version of industrial farming. There's some indication of that, but it's hard to track. Um, but there is like there, the political situation in the New Testament is having been under foreign empires for a very long time. Um, so again, I think that just changes how you think about land. Um, but all that said, um, most of Jesus' parables, for example, are about farming. Um, like they're they're taken from farming life. And um, like, I don't think they're, they're not like about whether trees are something you can relate to or not, but that's still like the main frame of reference. Like religion isn't lived kind of abstractly away from the land. Like when Jesus needs to say something, he's like, you know, that thing we do sowing seeds, let's talk about it. Um, so, yeah. You know, Mari, you've been talking a little bit about some of the ways in which extreme weather and other, you know, ecological forces have been weaponized in the Old Testament. And, you know, we can certainly see some of that in our modern day context, you know, I mean, even before the war in, in Israel-Palestine right now got started in the fall, there was a long history of the weaponization of key resources, right, of withholding water and interrupting power supplies and things like that in the region that has now only worsened with the onset of the latest war. And so I'm curious what you think we have to learn from some of those stories in the Old Testament about the weaponization in that sense and what it offers us as we're sitting in this modern day context of this really horrific war and trying to figure out how to make sense of it, you know, how can we use the Old Testament to help us in that sense? Um, so I think we have to start with how, how the Bible has um, kind of helped us get here. So like the, the harmful effects um, and um, like both European colonialism, and I would say that like Israeli colonialism of Palestinian land is a really direct, right? Like it's it's funded by the US. It's a direct inheritor of that tradition, um, have made use of especially Joshua. Um so um though there's like larger themes in the Bible also, like the myth of the empty land. Um, it's not primarily from Joshua, it's from the, the exiles returning after the exile to an empty land that just happens to be full of people, <laughs> but they're not really there. It's empty. Don't worry about them. Um, and so, like, I think that's part of, um, like, um, kind of what all of us have been brought up with in some way. Like, I remember learning, I had a class in undergrad about um, I think the title was like African politics or something like that, but we learned a bunch of history. And I had just never learned to think about the continent of Africa as having history, except for Egypt. And I had to like, like, I was like, clearly, this woman is right, right? Everyone has history. 
but it was like such mental gymnastics to get over the like um Africa and also North America before conquest were just like eternally sitting in the forest doing nothing um even though like those are ideas that horrify me they were still very much part of me um and so when you see the rhetoric now um around I mean both from Canadian politicians but certainly from Israeli and American politicians about like um, Palestinians being human animals, about the land being underutilized. That is like, that is the same rhetoric applied to indigenous people here. Um, and um, the theologian Willie Jennings, he has talked about how with colonialism, Christianity becomes a means of separating people and land. The idea that you can like, that somehow that like relationship is optional. Um, that then is it's a very effective weapon. Um, I think we, we're seeing that very clearly. And in terms of like, so like, how do we respond? Um, I don't know that like today is the day to actually do the Bible study. I think today is the day to call your representative. Um, what are they called in Canada? Your MP, your legislative assembly person, um, or like protest. Um, which I guess like depending on what side you're on, but like children in Rafa are dying today. But we also need to do the mental work of, I think, relearning those things. Um, and um, I think that it requires thinking of the Bible, not as like something that's right or wrong, but as, the conversation partner we are committed to. And sometimes we're gonna have a fight. Um, and so like, I think Joshua can, can show us what conquest can do to people. So at the end of Joshua, um, the tribes that live on one side of the Jordan and the tribes that live on the other side of the Jordan almost go to war over an altar. Um, it's avoided, but essentially it's like, if this if this is how you live, you're always going to be have, having violent fights over the land. Um, and so it's not like I don't think it's helpful to think of Joshua just as a negative example. I think it's a book that that knows all the problems that come with exclusionary belonging. Um, and that those are already problematic when Joshua is being written. Like people are already worried about it. And if, if we paid more attention to how they were worried about it and less about like, let's be the inheritors of glorious conquest, um, I think that that would really help. Yeah, that's really insightful, Mari. And I think aligns really well with what the Forefront community is trying to do in, in creating a more inclusive and progressive relationship, you know, in our community and the relationship that we have with God and that we have with the Bible. So that was really interesting to hear you say. And another question on this topic, you know, we were talking about weaponization, but also even taking a step back in thinking about the climate crisis. We know that in the Middle East broadly and around the world that there are increasing episodes of extreme drought, for example, you know, even, even disregarding for a moment the withholding and the weaponization of some of those different resources, you know, the land on its own or with, with a lot of human interference is changing. And so I'm curious if you think that this idea that some people out there have about uh, the Holy Land and belonging to the Holy Land, quote unquote, now that it's becoming increasingly inhospitable for everyone, does that create opportunities for this conversation that we're trying to have? What are your thoughts on that? Um, so there's a book called Victorian Holocausts. Um, which are about um, really global droughts um, in the long 19th century, maybe. I, can't, I think that's about right. And But the argument of the book is that um, what was seen as um, like bad luck 
um, or like God being angry with the world, um, were a direct consequence of uh, primarily British colonial policies. So, for example, in India, um, communal, like long-established communal drought coping mechanisms were undermined through um, like cash crops, um, through ways of organizing labor, um, creating disconnects between different communities. So like you have a drought here, but you don't have a drought here. There would have been exchange, but now there's not. Um, and millions of people died. Like it was um, absolutely devastating. Um, and well, so I think maybe what's helpful about thinking about ways in which like the whole world, right, is in many ways becoming less hospitable. Like we're all having, here it's fire season. Um, it's not fire season now, it's coming. Um, but um, that like, if we're gonna do well, we need those kinds of communal um, responses to crisis. And that, that people, um, like we haven't seen climate change is both unique in the like the global reach, the global increase in temperature, parts per million, all that jazz. But people have been dealing with extreme weather and often successfully for a long time without all of our technology, primarily through um, like communities supporting each other through planning for it. Like, it's not like rocket science, and yet it is rocket science. Um, so I think like we need those kinds of things and nothing undermines that as much as war. And saying like this piece of land is mine, you've got to go elsewhere. Um, I don't know that that's like, I don't think that's gonna stop the present war, but um, I think it is essentially becoming increasingly important for everyone's survival that we cooperate. This whole conversation has really kind of um, revealed to me how, I mean, you mentioned this idea of how um, ancient Judeans would have, would be horrified by our concept, our current concept of land ownership of, of private property, that kind of thing. And just kind of realizing how far the pendulum has swung to the idea of not just like wanting to own land to utilize it for whatever your purposes, but how it also is so now tied into identity, not just for a person, but for a people. I mean, we see that with Israel and Palestine, this idea of like, this is, you know, I am an, I am Israeli, so this is my land, or I am a Palestinian, so this is my land, and how identity is tied to that. Even here in America, this idea of like, if you live above a certain, uh, a certain line, uh, you know, a certain hemisphere, you identify as like, well, this is what I value. This is what I believe. But if you live below that, this is what I value. This is what I believe. And, and it's so, it, and people's identity is so tied into where they are. Um, you know, I, you, you tell people if we travel, if Amanda and I were travel to London or to Japan, like, oh, yeah, we're New Yorkers. People are like, ah, I get a sense of who you are because of where you come right. from. There's not really a question in there so much as just it's, it seems like the pendulum has swung in the extreme where it's not just like we are stewards of land, but like, no land where we are, this is, this is tied into our, our identity. Now where we are becomes a, such a sizable part of, of, of what we care about that it, it comes to a point where like, we are going to fight wars over this as well. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a weird thing because like, um, like, like, um, what's it called nation state identity is in some ways very tied to land and i think i think actually city identity is more interesting because it does usually have something to do with the actual conditions of living um whereas nation state is like much more diffu diffu diffuse so it's a sort of landed identity that also doesn't um, like you don't actually need to know what trees grows in your country to claim it. Um, so it's both like divorced from and 
connected to a piece of land. And I think like like territory is essentially, I think the word that, right, like a nation state has uh, territorial sovereignty and can exercise violence in defense of that, um, both internally and externally. Um, that's different than um, this is my ancestral piece of land that has been handed down for generations that I must take care of so that I can continue to hand it down for generations. Um, you might still defend it with violence. Like, I don't think it excludes that, but that's not essential to the definition. I feel like there are, I think Willie Jennings that I talked about, he's, I think he's working on this. Like there's, there is, I think that relationship is really quite complex, but um, yeah, it's like naming exactly what is it, in what way is the nation state a connection to a particular place and in what way is it not? And I don't have the answer to that yet. Um, but again, I think cities are more interesting um, because, I mean, New York is huge, but they're still like smaller um, and people are going to have, even people who live very different, like socioeconomically very different life, have to have some shared experience. And that's not true in the same ways of like people who live in dramatically different places um, in a place in a country. Yeah, and this is particularly relevant as we see some of the island nations and low-lying countries with our changing climate, with rising sea levels, are facing, you know, the complete destruction of their nation state. We've already seen some waves of climate refugees, and we'll see a lot more in the years to come for reasons related to that. And it makes me think about some of the experiences that the Jewish community had in the Old Testament in, you know, the Babylonian and the Assyrian exile. I'm curious, Mari, if there are connections there that you see as the Jewish people were learning how to exist in diaspora, because those are many of the same questions that we're going to be thinking about, that we are already thinking about now, but are going to become especially relevant as we figure out how to honor cultures of nations that might not exist anymore, or in the case of, you know, the many regions that are at war, uh, are facing a similar vein of challenges as well. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so my first thought is that um, that I'm probably not the right person, but um, essentially, so like I think island community, island nations have often been considered as like not quite real, right? So it's not just that that island nations are now being flooded, like literally, um, but island communities have been moved, like hundred percent removed for military bases in the past, for example, just like. You may go here to Australia or you may go here to London, right? Like, can you imagine the horror of having lived in a small island community and then being given like London or Sydney as your choices? But there are strong island community diasporas already um, and who are actually doing really, like there's really interesting biblical scholarship coming from diaspora communities. Um, and, and a lot of it is about like um, thinking about identity and thinking about um, like for people where there still is an island, like how does this diaspora relate to the home community? Um, and there's a book that I have my students, well, I know, of course I read, teach, read, that I now can't, it's about Ecclesiastes. It's like Pacifica and island readings of Ecclesiastes or something like that. Um, that is a really great example. Um, and like essentially, I think like it, it can't be like um, told from the outside how to, to um, keep your tradition. Um, but I think part of the reason why Jewish tradition survived rather than just disappear in exile is that in the Bible we see both um, we see both like a real commitment to tradition. Um, but that commitment in, includes like flexibility. So it's not like um, 
like there's internal disagreement, there's discussion, there's updating. So we see that even just like between Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those are closely related legal traditions. They're also really different. Um, and there is a close connection to a specific land, but, um, but there are traditions that allow that to survive even when you're not on the land. So like, for example, all of Torah is narrated as being given outside of the land. So all of it is for the land, for when you're in the land, but it's given entirely outside. Um, in Ezekiel, you have the, um, like the glory of God leaves the temple, um, but then essentially follows the exile into, like it follows the same path as the exile takes out of the city, which isn't obvious when you're reading it, but um, like the glory of God leaves partly because like Ezekiel, God is very upset about the state of the temple, but also because the exiles are leaving. God's got to go with them. Um, so there, there are traditions that talk about how, um, how to stay connected to God um, and then reinterpretation of laws that lets you sort of stay connected to the land as well, um, even though you're not there. So I, again, I don't think like different people aren't going to, be able to take that as like a cake recipe. Um, but I think like as an analogy, um, it might be useful. And people are already doing it. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think we see a lot of that in the conservative sides of the American church, particularly on the Protestant side, people looking for a cake recipe <laughs> right tell me tell me what i need to do yeah. exactly to the t what is the takeaway uh, right i don't want anything else and i i think that's a really interesting takeaway as we think about how to get more people in our community in the american church community interested in environmentalism because at least for the past century or so there really has not been that interest at all, you know, for, related to some of the themes that we've been discussing today. And so I'm curious, Mari, if you have any additional ideas that we should be thinking about as we're trying to get more faith communities engaged in climate activism, what can we do? This is the big question. Um, so I do think, like, I think to some extent it is happening simply because people, it's getting harder and harder to sustain the idea that everything is fine. Um, so um, like more and more people are experiencing wildfires and extreme like wind and drought and um, like the number of people who are um, dependent on rivers that might no longer run. Like that's a lot of the country. Um, and um, now I can't remember her name. Um, Professor at Duke was doing study of Christian homeschooling material, and climate is showing up more and more, though with a different. Like it's not; it's no longer climate change denialism, but it's sort of like there's still the like, but God is all powerful, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, so, like I think there's struggle, but it's showing up there in a different way. Um, and I feel like if homeschoolers are doing it, um, besides that, like, I think what we've got that is in common, though in a complicated way, is the Bible. Um, and um, I do think that that can be a way into, into conversation. But again, I think it's really, really hard. So, like, I've had... I've tried to explain to like fundamentalists what I do. And they're like, oh yeah, the animals are going to get us in the apocalypse, aren't they? And I'm like, well, I, <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Um, but like we're working with such different interpretive filters. Um, and I think it's really hard to stay patient. Right? Like I'm just like, okay, so let's talk about something else. <laughs> um, but like, I think at least like the words that are on the page are a common thing and so can be a place of conversation. Um, but it requires like an almost like 
superhuman amount of patience. Um, so I think we need, essentially we need to find the people with that level of patience and get them talking to each other. Um, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I, like, I don't despair in the sense of like, I lie down and do nothing. But um, I don't, I don't have like a clear solution in mind. Like, I think we have to keep working to do what we can to stave off the worst of climate change, because what is the other option? Um, but sometimes when I think through like how I think that will happen, um, I actually find it really unhelpful because I'm just like, I probably won't. <laughs> um, whereas I just think of like, um, well, I'm about to quote Frozen. I'm sorry, I have kids. Um, but um, what's the next right thing? Um, like that's, I think sometimes is as far as like I can think without panic. But I, I think you've hit upon a lot of points that a lot of us who who take this kind of seriously have all, if not been thinking about for a while, have kind of started thinking about. And, you know, I, I want to thank you for for your time today for this uh, conversation. It was certainly, I, I know, I think I can speak on behalf of Amanda when I say we found it incredibly insightful and edifying. And, you know, maybe we don't have to have, you know, a plan right now as to here's what's going to happen next and here's what's going to happen after that. It might be something as simple as, Someone has listened to this conversation and they start reevaluating or rethinking about their relationship with what has just kind of been thought of like as land, as dirt, as earth. Maybe that's maybe that's a, you know, the, the, the next link in the chain. Yeah, I mean, that professor in undergrad, she changed me. It can happen again. <laughs> <laughs>